They say that Scotland is a land on the edge of reality. Today we travel to Loch Ness, home of the Loch Ness Monster, and we meet Adrian Schein, considered the foremost expert on the subject. What he has to say may change how you view, well, life. Expanding World in association with the Explorers Club are proud sponsors of this episode of Life's Tough, Explorers Are Tougher and the Global Exploration Summit, a pioneering endeavor bringing together the world's leading explorers, sharing cutting-edge technology, and innovations to propel us toward the next frontier in the future of exploration and to make a difference in the future of humanity. Visit GlexSummit.com to learn more about the Global Exploration Summit and the impactful men and women who are the heart and soul of scientific innovation and exploration. This is Life's Tough, but Explorers are Tougher. I'm your host, Richard Weiss. If you're new to Life's Tough, I'd like to welcome you and tell you a little about myself and the show. First of all, I love the outdoors. I always have, and I always will. And I've also been surrounded by explorers my entire life. My father, Richard Weiss Sr., was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. The New York Times called him the Lone Eagle of the Pacific. Some of my fondest memories were standing out on our lawn underneath the stars with my father telling me how explorers use the stars to navigate. I guess we talked about a few other things as well. And speaking of talking, I host a television show called Born to Explore, It's on PBS stations around the country, so please check it out. And finally, I've been president of the world-famous Explorers Club. Just about every great explorer of the 20th and 21st century has been a member, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Jane Goodall, Theodore Roosevelt. Some people say it's like Harry Potter's Hogwarts, only for adults. I've heard stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You see, explorers are the type of people who walk in space, go to the bottom of the ocean, and stand on the highest summits. Scratch the surface of any explorer, and you'll find they're all storytellers. This show is about their tales. Welcome to a special edition of Life's Tough, Explorers Are Tougher. Today, we're going to go on a field trip to Scotland and its fabled Loch Ness, home of the Loch Ness Monster. Our guest is Adrian Shine, considered the foremost expert on Nessie, as the locals like to say. Okay, let me give you the setting. Adrian and I are on a small boat, so you may hear the lapping of water against our boat. We're just offshore from the Loch Ness Castle, where in 1934, The most famous photo of this sea serpent was taken. I hope you enjoy the interview. Adrian, how did you come upon Loch Ness? I came upon Loch Ness as a boy uh, because uh, the tradition was well established at that point. I even, uh, as a seven-year-old on the Norfolk coast of England, 
had my first encounter with a sea serpent in that um, standing on the beach in the evening with my parents. I saw some fast-moving humps near to the horizon. I subsequently found out that they were water birds, but you know how children expect certainty from adults? Santa Claus. I asked, you know, what about these sea serpents? Are they real? And of course you don't get a satisfactory answer, do you? And the same applies to the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, you ask about it as a child, and of course it fascinates you, because, you know, children and later young men um, were all meant to go as knight errants, weren't they, and slay dragons. Well, I think that's probably what I did, but as an amateur naturalist, I was fascinated by some credible work that was going on by one of our most eminent naturalists, Sir Peter Scott, and the Member of Parliament, David James, who were investigating Loch Ness. They wanted to know what it was that people were seeing, and a lot of people were seeing things they thought were large animals. And so I was reading the books about these expeditions, about the cameras that had been put around the loch, and I, my fascination grew. And ultimately I decided to mount my own expedition, which was a very small affair, it was just me, um, there was another Scottish loch that had a, a similar tradition, which I was only made aware of when in 1969 a boat was allegedly attacked by, or rammed by, a creature in Loch Mora on the west coast of Scotland. But it has this clear water, which makes it different to Loch Ness. But anyway, I thought this was something I could do. So and knowing as, as a naturalist, that aquatic creatures, big and small, often come close to the surface at night. I went and hired a rowing boat on Loch Mora and drifted at night with a, a big light with a camera attached to it on the basis that um, if, if, if large creatures in Loch Ness were going to come close to the surface at night and want to attack rowing boats, well, um, maybe I'd be the lucky one. And remember, young men are immortal. Yes, and so how long did that last? Well, it lasted a week, and uh, one evening I did actually have my encounter. I had my encounter when I was rowing along the shoreline nine miles from the nearest habitation all by myself. The water was very calm. There was going to be a big storm, actually. And from in, in the dusk, from behind a promontory, a hump cruised gently out towards the centre of the loch. And it looked just like those classic images in the book that I brought with me from a previous investigation. And I took a picture, I even took a picture. And I've got my cine camera ready, holding it between my knees. I back on the oars, looking backwards, remember, I want to close the distance. And I'm not taking my eyes off the thing. But it seems to get closer much more quickly than I expected, because it seemed to be a long way away. And it stopped looking like a back, a huge classic back, and it began to look like a vast submerged head. Okay? That sounds and, more frightening. Uh, uh, oh yes. And ripples began to break away from it. It was moving. How are you feeling? I'm feeling frightened, but this is the moment of truth, isn't it? And young men are immortal, okay? 
I had a mediocre brain, I was lazy, I wanted quick fame and fortune. And so I moved that bit closer. It was a rock. It was that high. It was that high. What had happened was that because of the dark, the rock, the, the hump that I thought had come from behind the promontory had actually come from in front of it, much closer to me, in the dark. And the wake of my own boat had reached it at the point where it appeared to move. And that taught me, one, to follow everything to the end, and secondly, that if I couldn't believe my own eyes, then I shouldn't necessarily believe anybody else's either. But your research went a lot further. In fact, your research took you here. So how did you get to Loch Ness? I got to Loch Ness about seven years later, after leading a series of expeditions at Loch Mora, where I was exploiting the water clarity. Uh, one of the things I noticed from my little rowing boat in 1973 was that the water was very clear in comparison to this dark, legendarily brown peat stain in Loch Ness. And I thought, well, rather than sitting around up here, perhaps I should be sitting around down there. And so I built a little submersible camera hide, uh, just as you might uh, film wildlife on the surface from a hide, you sit still. Uh, the same idea, just as in the rowing boat, I was wanting something to be attracted to me, so I built this little sub submersible over the winter of um, 70, um, uh, you know, 1973-74. And we took it up to Scotland, this time with a few accomplices, and we put it down 30 feet and baited it to attract fish. And it was while sitting in that that my interests extended to the fish and the plankton and the other aspects of uh, Scottish locks, which have fascinated me ever since. And what did you find? Well, we didn't find any, any, any beasts, any, any morags as they were called there. Uh, but I found out a lot about uh, biology. I recruited university students to join the scientific aspects of my expeditions. I, used un I substituted underwater cameras for the rather unsafe manned devices that I'd used previously. Uh, then the staff of the universities joined me as well for the same reasons. And um, the rest is my history. I moved to Loch Ness to exploit the uh, the sonar possibilities. Previous expeditions had gained sonar contacts they couldn't explain. I built a sonar vessel and we patrolled up and down the lock in 1981, got contacts we couldn't explain, uh, used a number of analytical techniques on them, changing the methodology each year. Ultimately, in 1987, there was Operation Deep Scan, which was a a multi-vessel sonar sweep of Loch Ness. Inconclusive, certainly there weren't any vast sonar contacts. And the 90s were really dominated by conventional science. You know, was the loch productive? Uh, what could live in Loch Ness? What did the temperatures tell us about what could live in Loch Ness? It would be a very cold place for a plesiosaur. 
which we believe in the Jurassic was swimming in warm, shallow seas. Factors like that, what I call the indirect approach, rather than sitting around with cameras either on the shore or sitting around with cameras underneath, as, as I did in the 70s, um, rather than probing around with sonar for things that were unusual, we were really looking much more at what was usual. Um, how many fish were there in Loch Ness? What could the fish, fish population sustain? And the answer was not very much. Um, therefore, my attention moved, as it is now, to the nature of human perception. Um, not just studying mud in Loch Ness, which is another one of my fascinations, but in terms of monsters, I'm now much more interested in humans than I am in uh, what, uh, what may be, be seen. I want to know what it is that causes people to see the things they see. Uh, is it simply the power of, of illusion that the Loch has? I think a lot has got to do with that the power of illusion, but a great deal more of it must have to do with what we want to see. I would think that um, human nature uh, from the beginning of time has always wanted to believe there was something greater or bigger controlling their life. I think that's part of the perception, but you know, in terms of Loch Ness, I can see the romance of it. You know, I can definitely see the romance. You're in dragon country, but you know, why do you continue here at Loch Ness in your research? Oh, for me, yeah, uh, it's it's Loch Ness itself. It's a, it's a large Scottish, you know, it's a big Scottish loch, and that's that's what I've taken to studying. Uh, so that's e an easy question for me to answer. You know, you'll find papers I've collaborated on, or or written on on plankton, uh, sediments, uh, the physics of Loch Ness, all these fascinating things. Uh, the monster is only a part of that for me now. So do you have any overarching conclusions about Loch Ness, Scottish character? Well, I have an overarching uh, conclusion regarding Loch Ness in terms of Jurassic Park. It's not Jurassic Park. It's a legacy of the ice which last left here 10,000 years ago. Uh, it is also an unproductive lake. I don't think there is a viable resident population of very large predators in it. But that doesn't mean that every witness has failed to see some unusual creature in Loch Ness. The River Ness is still an avenue to the sea. And there are some possibilities, and I'm guilty of suggesting one or two, um, which could be seen. On Loch Ness. I'm guilty of suggesting Atlantic sturgeon as one underlying possibility. And sturgeon's quite large. Very large, yes, and very primitive, reptilian looking. They don't feed in fresh water any more than salmon do. They might come in once in a blue moon and go. Uh, but the majority of sightings are due to these, these, um, these other illusions. In terms of the Scottish character, well, actually, this, this has got very little to do with the Scottish character in terms of how the thing is being portrayed, because it's the visitor that's done this. It's the interest that the rest of the world has shown. The, the, I think it's aided by the popularity of Scottish culture. That is where Scottish culture has contributed to the popularity of Loch Ness. People like Scots. Yeah. You'll do. find them everywhere. 
<laughs> you will find them absolutely everywhere. I believe 12 million people in the United States claim some measure of uh, Scottish descent. I learned that at Tartan Week in New, in New York uh, just a couple of years ago. Uh, so the romance, the colourful nature of Scottish culture means that things Scottish are popular throughout, throughout the Western world. Uh, in America particularly, Scotland is also, also seen, quite wrongly by the way, as some sort of colony. And of course there's the colonial tradition in, in the United States. There's a, it's seen as a slightly rebellious uh, element, well, uh, I, I as think the Irish are. Yeah, I know? think you see that in literature. You see sort of very popular romantic characters like Braveheart, you know, sort of that irreverent yeah. uh, person. But I, I think, you know, perhaps one of the characters characteristics of the Scottish people are they're also good storytellers. Oh, yes. I mean, in the same reason I'm standing here looking at you, like this, I mean, this is one of the best stories I've, I've ever heard, and you tell it well. <laughs> Thank you, and I'm not even a Scot. <laughs> but see, that, that to me is all part of the great story. In fact, the people who've been drawn to investigate here have been far more English and American. Um, in fact, that, that's another reason why Loch Ness seems to have this priority among the many lakes in the world that have, uh, that have monster traditions. Um, it's the nature of the investigators and their nationalities and the way their newspapers report their activities. Sure, and you know, I, I always think, I'm a skeptic by nature unless I see something with my own eyes or I, I find it's credible. But what I have found with a lot of myths around the world is they're based on something. That's it ba it's based on some bit of information that you can then draw to something much larger. Yes, I agree. Skepticism is not cynicism. To begin with, uh, you know, if we were cynical, we'd say, well, people are drunk, uh, people really want to see uh, something, they've conjured it up. Not true at all, absolutely not. Um, a good case in point, in terms of what you're saying about the grains of truth, I suppose, behind legend, is the matter of the multi-humped sea serpent form of the Loch Ness Monster, which we've come to recognise as being generated by boat wakes. So the, the, the interesting point there is that what we're doing is seeing things in the environment which confirm the stereotype in our minds. So it's a kind of a circle, possibly. Something starts a tradition, and from uh, love of storytelling and narrative, a stereotype develops. But then we look back into the world and find confirmation for that stereotype in things that happen. And the best example we have on Loch Ness are those boat wakes, which you've seen today. But even think about yourself as, as a young man, you wanted to be the first person oh, yeah. to really verify the Loch Ness Monster. You're looking for, you know, sort of importance in the world. And young sailors who saw manatees, saw mermaids, and people saw other things. I mean, tales seem like a lot of young men at least start these or, or the ones that go beyond the edge of where the map ends. Yes, well, we're, we're looking for a soft option as well. So we are, we, we are not harnessed by experience. We simply unleash our imagination. Can, can you speak, this is a, a little off the subject of, of Loch Ness. 
but you know, you have lived here for 20 years and you are a keen observer. And so when you look at generalities of different cultures, like you mentioned that Americans are, are considered better self-promoters, right? Yeah. I, I would say that would be an accurate portrayal for good and for bad. What would be some of the characteristics of Scottish people, especially the countryside? What, what do you see the observations that you've made as an observer? I suppose grit, uh, a certain fatalism. Um, it rains a bit in Scotland. We've got to admit it, it rains. And a favorite expression that I see as a, an incomer is um, it rains and often the response will be, well, the ground's needing it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> they, uh, so they have this immense grit and persistence within working in their environment. If you look at the uh, clan system, it was composed of subsistence farmers. It took a lot of effort to get a living from the, the land, this mountain, you know, the mountainous land, particularly the, particularly the highlands. And culturally, one also has to accept there is a big difference between the highlander and the, the city dwellers. After all, there was the Scottish Enlightenment. Uh, at the same time that Adam Smith was writing his Wealth of Nations, you know, these great economic treatises, uh, the chieftain warlords here were running their own private armies for blood feud and, and cattle raiding. They were administering, legally administering justice. Uh, one of them tied a woman by her hair to the rocks before the rising tide because she's thought to have been a thief. Now, those matters, you see, were already anachronistic by, by the time of the Act of Union. Why do you think people, you know, you've mentioned this a couple of times, why do you think people do like Scottish people? Uh, partly because Scots are everywhere and they're not such a bad advertisement. Yeah, but there's not a lot of them. There's a lot more <laughs> Indians around the world. There's a lot more Ameri Germans, any, anything. Why Scottish people? Perhaps it's the colour, the sheer colourful nature of uh, the way people perceive the Scottish way of life, the way that um, they, they dress, the battles they fought, the music they play. They are distinctive. Adrian, thank you so much. You know, ever since I was a boy, I've always wanted to see Loch Ness. So for me, this is really a journey back into my own childhood. So I, I thank you very much for this. You're very welcome. Every great expedition has to come to an end. But that doesn't mean we can't stay in touch. Send us your favorite expedition pictures and tell us about your most memorable journeys, large or small. All right. Get something to write with. Here are my coordinates. www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. One more time. www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. That's it for today. Hope to see you out on the trail.